You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Now, it's summertime, and that means it's time to start getting our trail cameras ready and our trail cameras out to start capturing pictures of velvet bucks. And our friends at Exodus are kicking things off with Velvet Fest. Now, what is Velvet Fest? Long story short, Velvet Fest is the opportunity for you to win a variety of different prizes just by purchasing Exodus Trail Cameras, one of the best trail cameras on the market. Now, until July 12th, when you purchase any trail camera, you will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a variety of prizes from companies like Wicked Tree Gear, Maven Rifle Scopes, Tethered Tree Saddles, and of course, Exodus Trail Cameras. Be sure to follow Exodus on Facebook and Instagram, and be sure to visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com for more information on Velvet Fest. All right, everybody, it's Monday, and we're back with another awesome podcast today. Today's episode is a kind of conglomeration of a whole bunch of different little stories. Uh, today's guest, uh, April, she is from New York, from Long Island, moved to the Adirondacks, then moved to Florida. Okay, kind of just completely different environments right there. And we're going to get a whole, like a couple different cool stories from her about number one, being a woman who basically taught herself how to hunt she came from a white collar family and uh she decided i want to be a hunter and we talk about that uh we talk about um some really cool experiences that she had while sitting in the woods we talk about encounters with coyotes we talk about encounters with owls uh we talk about her hunting not only in the adirondacks but down in florida as well and this is just a really cool episode because I'm a huge believer that every time you step into the woods, uh, not necessarily something big and epic is going to happen, but you get some, some awesome experience if you really sit down, relax, and absorb your surroundings, right? I mean, uh, if you feel that you know, the only time you can be successful in the woods is to kill something, I think you're missing the point. Um, so observation is something that I'm a huge, uh, I don't know, a huge fan of just being able to listen. You know, maybe you hear a bird that you've never heard before, or you've seen an animal that you've never heard before, or you see a owl totally destroy a squirrel, which uh, that is my story from from this uh, episode as well. So uh, me and her, we share a couple awesome stories. She talks about growing up in a family that didn't hunt, how she taught herself, 
Uh, and the, the kicker is, is she's a woman, right? So we, as a hunting community, often say, well, hey, you can't be, a woman can't be a hunter because she's got to have, a, you know, a man teach her how to do everything. That's not the case in this story. So uh, she's self-taught, no lessons uh, type of deal. And uh, I'm excited to, to share this podcast with you. Now, I got my trail cameras out uh, yesterday and I'm jacked. Uh, because I typically have them up even in April. I like to watch all of the growth uh, throughout the entire summer, and um, I know I've been battling some thieves in the past three or four years, and uh, I got cable locks on my cameras. I got little locks that they can't open up, so I had to spend the extra money, and... um, Hopefully that saves me in my equipment, but if it doesn't, man, I gotta I gotta ace up my sleeve, so to speak. So uh, we'll see if that. Let's see, I'm doing a lot of talking in this intro, but anyway, uh, we'll see if that works. And I, and long story short, I'm just freaking excited to see the velvet growth. I'm getting people sending me pictures every day saying, "Dan, check out this buck," or "Check out this buck," or "Check out this buck," and I just. That makes me want to go check my trail cameras right away, but you know I'm going to give it probably three weeks, maybe the entire month before I go back. I'll check my trail cameras when I go to set up my uh, when I go to set up my tree stands, and then you know August. You wait the entire month of August. Uh, September is kind of a no-no month for me. You know, I don't. I try to stay out of the woods in the month of September, and uh, then next thing you know, I'm going on an elk hunt. I'm going on a mule deer hunt before I even start thinking about whitetails. So it may not be until mid to late October that I even hit the timber in Iowa for the first time. Who knows? Right. All that's all that's up for uh, change and negotiation. So we'll see what happens. I've done a lot of talking. But before we get into today's episode, guys, you know, we've done this the last two years. And what we've done is if you go to lonewolfhuntingproducts.com slash nine fingers, that's the number nine followed by the word fingers. It's going to take you to a page on a website. You enter your name, right? You sign up. It says, sign up below to register to win free Lone Wolf products throughout the year. You will also receive a promo code to save $50 off any order over $199. And that's for the tree stand and the climbing stick. So you submit that, your name gets entered into the uh, database. And then what we do is we randomly select one winner out of all of those people right and uh so if you did it last year you need to do it again and uh then you this year we're we're doing a you can pick a tree stand of your choice or sticks right let's say you need some more sticks so you can pick a set of four sticks or you can pick an assault or you can pick a uh climber or you can pick a assault and alpha right so LoneWolfHuntingProducts.com slash nine fingers. Go check it out. It is a badass tree stand, and this is an actual, absolutely awesome opportunity for you to win some gear because we're going to be picking a winner July 1st. Well, today's July 1st, and we're not going to pick a winner, but uh, probably I'm going to give you guys a couple more days. We'll probably pick one next Monday. Uh, so July 1st, August 1st, September 1st, and October 1st, we're going to be 
we're going to be picking four winners throughout the next four months. And, uh, and also you get a kick-ass discount code when you sign up and that makes it worth it, worth it all. Right. So you're, uh, you're, you got a huge savings on that as well. So now I have officially been talking too much. Let's get into today's podcast with some more great stories. It's an awesome podcast, blah, 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 blah. Here we go. All right, on the phone with me right now, Miss April Shan. How you doing? Very good. Good deal, good deal. So you reached out to me uh, when I uh, like put the the message out there about epic hunting stories or cool hunting stories, and, and you kind of reached out uh, to me. And, uh, and I'm going to get into all that like we always do, but uh, why don't we just kick things off with uh, where are you from and what do you do for a living? Well, I grew up on what the rest of the country doesn't seem to believe used to be rural Long Island, New okay. York. And most recently was from the Adirondack region of New York. Gotcha. Now I'm recently moved to Florida. Gotcha. So when people say New York or they say Long Island, they, you don't think of rural like uh, there's farms or anything like that out there. <laughs> you know... There's a line in the Brooks and Dunn song, something about she's country. Right. And there's some, they, it's a big joke, but there were really hillbillies on Long Island when I grew up, when I was a kid. Gotcha. Dirt roads. So that was, like, how, how long ago was that? 70s. 70s? Okay. So Six, what? 70s, yeah. Okay, so since then, has all of Long Island then been developed? Do you ever go back there? You know, there's actually some awesome bucks there. Mm-hmm. There's just such restrictions on the state lands. But I do go back. I don't spend a lot of time there. Gotcha, gotcha. So how old were you when you moved from Long Island then to the Adirondacks? Um, I was in my 40s. It took me a long time because my job was at Belmont Racetrack. Okay. And I couldn't get that far away, but every summer we went up to a place called Saratoga, and um, it's Adirondack Mountains, the lower Adirondack Mountains, and it's gorgeous. Yeah. Fishing, wildlands, you know, always wanted to live up there. Gotcha. So that kind of, you mentioned you're from, uh, you worked at the Belmont racetracks? Yes, sir. I'm a, what they call a racetracker. A racetracker. Okay. <laughs> I worked with racehorses all my life. That's awesome um, because not necessarily racehorses, but my grandpa uh, raised Shetland horses and he showed them in fairs and uh, went on parades and did a whole bunch of things with these Shetland horses that he kind of raised just as uh, uh, just for fun. And I can remember when I was a kid, he his favorite thing to do was watch Cubs baseball. But one thing that he liked over top of all of that was watching the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes religiously. Like, he made a whole day out of it. And uh, and he he loved horses, and he loved watching watching races. What's, like, I, I find that really interesting because you, you hear stories about some of these horses being millions of dollars. You know, they're, they're worth more than like houses and whatnot. What's, what's it like? What's that, that industry like horse racing? 
just like any other industry, you kind of have to climb the ladder a bit. You know, like I kind of started as a groom, and when I came in, there weren't very many women on the racetrack. It was a very tough go <laughs> for especially a, a female rider, you know, like I was an exercise rider or rider. But um, really rewarding. The best job I ever had, all I did was ship around the country with those million-dollar horses that you're talking about. They yeah. entered them at big races, Breeders' Cup, the Derby, and I just traveled with the horses. But it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. Yeah. Like we call everybody else civilians. Yeah. It's like being in the Army. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's if you want to be part of it, you have to commit to the travel. You have to commit to the... You know, oh, seven days a week, uh, 20 below zero or 102 degrees. The horses stay poop and eat every day. Yeah. And they have to go out, you know. So it's like one of those things, if, if you're weak, you don't make it in the, in the racing game as far as an employee, you know, a backstretch employee goes. Yeah. That's crazy. So, uh, what were your, what were your jobs then? Uh, like, cause you said you, you started from the bottom and then kind of worked your way up to, um, you know, traveling all over the, the world or the, the country. Yeah, I was a horse crazy girl. Like, oh, a lot of girls, you know, just had my riding horse. I was a Long Island champion when it show horses and came to the racetrack and I had a, I, I was a good rider. So I had a lot of ability and, I just started, and next thing, I'm a groom, I'm an exercise rider, I'm an assistant trainer because I'm responsible, and I was good at organizing and managing. And You know, you get to the point where I ended up having a farm, I was I bred my own horses, I, uh, I was my own trainer. I actually was a jockey at one point. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. It was fun. That's awesome. That was fun. So, so you lived and worked in Long Island until about 40. What got you out of that and moved you to the Adirondacks then? Um, my son about to go to kindergarten okay. and the area around where the racetrack Belmont Park is in Long Island was not the school I had in mind for my son. I wanted him to go to a place like I went to. Yeah. Rural. Yeah. So and my parents had moved up and eventually they were going to get old somebody had to be there you know my brother lives in colorado springs so gotcha so it was one of these things where you just wanted a, you wanted a better life for your kid yeah you know i mean the women sometimes end up doing the sacrifice like that you know mm -hmm. i had to make a decision i've had some other big trainers that win all those kentucky derbies say oh you know you're ruining your career and i said yeah but my son's gonna go to a good school yeah so it's, it was almost like a big sacrifice for you just to make sure that your kid got a, a better education. Yes. Uh, I also was not a suburbanite. You know, I, I grew up suburban. I never liked living on a quarter of an acre. Yeah. You know, I always had the, the wild life in me as far as being near nature and fishing and hunting. and. Yeah. My parents totally didn't get it. They were white collar people. They were typical city people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My brother too, you know. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I hear that story every once in a while of someone in your, you know, in your shoes who, you know, I lived in Chicago my whole life or I lived in New York or some other big city my whole life and nobody hunted in my family. No one hunted, no one fished. You know, we were... You know, I was raised in the city and then something happened to one of the people in that family that 
they got exposed somehow to hunting, maybe through like a crazy uncle or a, um, a friend's dad or something like that. And then they ended up uh, falling in love with, with hunting and having to go, you know, do all, you know, and then their parents would have to take them and do outdoor things with them when they really didn't want to. So that, I, I hear that story every once in a while. For me, I think it's kind of in my pedigree. When I was 16, I learned I was adopted. Okay. It, like, explained everything. Because when my brother was in the Boy Scouts and I was in the Brownies as a small child, yeah, and he got to go to, like, Bear Mountain, and to us, that was the wild place, you know? Yeah. And the girls got to, like, sew and, you know. <laughs> Boring. And I was like, yeah, I want to go trout fishing. Like, I, I, when I was young, all I wanted to do was, like, go to Montana and go trout fishing. Yeah, and my father, he didn't know. We went flounder fishing with like fifty pound test off of Cap Tree State Park in Long Island. We didn't. We never caught anything. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. So let me ask you this then: uh, When were you introduced into hunting? Then there's always been something about a bow. I, I can't even explain it. It's like the same thing for me with horses. It's like. When everybody got toys as a child and you had cap guns, you know, we're six years old. And I had the little bows with the suction cups and yep. there was a big area behind my house. Um, they called, My parents called it a sump. It was like a drainage area. Yep. And it had like rabbits and stuff in it because we had no deer on Long Island at the time. And I used to like take off the suction cups and sharpen the end of the arrow and oh, I got so much trouble for it. But that actually like, I ended up getting an Indian nickname because my horse that I had at the time, he was in a pony and he wasn't a horse. He was in the middle and I had a really tough time sitting him. And somebody told me, like, he used to get rubs on his back from the saddle. And they said, if you use the rabbit skin saddle pad, you'll never have a problem. And I looked and, you know, I was like 13 or 14. I couldn't find anything. And at that time I had a recurve bow. I, I, I don't even remember where I got it. I had a stemler. And I used to walk on the horseback when we had, like, we used to have a lot of snow at that time. And I would walk through a couple inches of snow, and I ended up shooting enough rabbits to get this blanket to my parents' disgust. Like, I was not allowed to bring anything in the house. But Yeah. So you shot rabbits just to make a blanket for your horse so he wouldn't get, uh, like, uh, a rash on his back. Right. He is, yeah, because he used to get rubbed up on his litters. I don't know if you remember from your Shetlands, but yeah, he used to get rubbed up on his litters. But it was also, like, satisfying to me. Like I said, if we had deer, I would have definitely deer hunted at that time. Yeah. Now Long Island's full of deer. Then we, we didn't have any deer on Long Island. Gotcha, gotcha. So was your move to the Adirondacks then like this awakening for you as far as being able to go out and do more hunting and outdoor related activities? Yeah, I kind of switched because when I was locked up down in the suburban Long Island, I got into striper fishing on the beach Yeah, and it's kind of a lot like bow hunting. Like you, you have to have the tide, you have to have the weather. It's a certain, it's right in the fall. And there's 50 pound fish waiting for you there if you know what you're doing. And when I moved up to New York, when I moved up to state New York, you know, we kind of worked seven days a week, so I was really busy. But as soon as I got where my mind could wander a little bit, we would trout fish. And I always saw deer. There's a lot of deer around. And I had 20 acres in my own backyard 
that my ex-husband used to be like, you know, oh, we let everybody in the world hunt there, and I would be putting up fence posts. One time I was dumping a wheelbarrow in the fall. This is my first experience to the rut. <laughs> I, I was pushing my, my horse poop out in the woods, yep. and I dumped the wheelbarrow, and this doe comes whizzing by me. And she was about six feet from my nose, and, and I'm just standing there watching her, and all of a sudden I hear, and I turn around and look, and there's a little four-corn buck standing about 15 feet from me, trying to figure out what I was. <laughs> and I remember turning around looking, and hit, I looked him right in the eye, and he was like the most magnificent creature, as small as he was. I mean, up there, even the, the four-corns are 150 pounds, you know? Yeah. But I looked at that and said, you know what? That's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So, so you already had some kind of you know I, I don't, inner monologue with yourself about hunting. Uh, you did a little hunting, you know, whether it was just rabbits or in archery uh, while you're in Long Island. You move out to the Adirondacks, and now you have more, I guess, uh, more opportunities to hunt. You know, how long after you moved there were you in a tree stand or have a gun or whatever and actually started hunting deer? Well, my ex-husband was supposedly this big, bad hunter, but he kind of wasn't. But I, I, <laughs> I went for my bow certification, and that's when I kind I got a real awakening. The, um, the gentleman that gave it, it's uh, DEC in New York, the DEC officer, was a Mohawk Indian kind of where i got my my nickname from yeah but all these guys walked in and i had this ll bean double-breasted flannel like this bright blue flannel shirt on and these guys all had the red and black checkered yeah jackets and dirty blue jeans and they looked at me like i had five heads <laughs> i went into the bus certification <laughs> class you know and in the beginning the the officer went around and everybody you know introduced ourselves there's like 20 people in the class and he said, um, say your name, where you're from, and what your hunting experience is. And I, he got around to me, and I said, well, my name's April Shan. I'm from Long Island. And um, I used to shoot rabbits on horseback with my recurve. Everybody <laughs> turned around and looked at me like I had said. <laughs> and he says, okay, Pocahontas, we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So how many how many years were you in the... Adirondacks before you moved to Florida. Just recently moved to Florida. Okay. Uh, I sold. I still have twenty acres up there, but I I sold off my farm and I'm trying because I'm so close to the Gulf, the fishing opportunity, and I live right next to um, a large patch of state land. Yeah. That actually, I saw some pretty nice bucks in last year. Like, there's some decent bucks in this north central area of Florida. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I hear. I hear. Uh, I know. A, I know a guy who lives down in Florida. He's closer to the Panhandle, but he was uh, telling me like, "Hey, man, a really good deer down here could get up to like 140 inches." And uh, you know, you hear guys north of that in Georgia say, "You know, yeah, we got deer in the 140 plus inch range as well." And so, yeah, tell if you find the oh, pockets. Oh, I've seen 180s come from places in Georgia. Like down here, there was a, a gentleman. Um, I've, I've been trying to pick around at the local people and there was a picture on the back of a cash register in a quick sack store and it was a nice buck. I mean, it was like 165, 170. Yeah. And it's 
funny here because they seem to have the bigger ones have these low, wide antlers and they have these really long nose, you know. And yeah. I around and they said, "Yeah, he was shot like two miles from where I live right now." Oh wow, that's awesome! Yeah, I was like, "Good." So you didn't really <laughs> you didn't really have to give up deer hunting when you moved to Florida. No, it, it was tougher down here. Like this is the first year we went to a tag system. It used to be two deer a day. I don't yeah. know how they survived. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. now we've got five, five deer total. Um, I'm all for it. You know, I'm all for the, I hope the QDMA digs in deep here. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, so you were, while you were living in the Adirondacks, you still uh, were working with horses, right? Seven days a week. Seven days a week. My back 20 taught me so much about deer hunting because I didn't have, you know, like I had no deer camp. I had no family. I had a couple friends. There was a, a bow hunter that worked in the feed store, and I used to pick their brains in the beginning. Because in the beginning, like, um, I started deer hunting in 2008, whitetail. Okay. And because um, I, I had a, my first compound bow, I had, like, in 1990, I had a bear whitetail or something. I hated it. Yeah. Compared to the recurve, I hated it. But then in 2008, I got a PSC super short. Yeah. That thing was the bomb. Yeah, I was, I couldn't believe how far compounds had come. <laughs> Dude, your story is ju- almost just like mine uh, because I remember hunting with some. I think it was a bear or a Browning or something like that. Bow, pretty sure it was a bear bow. For oh man, I got it used, and then I I used it all through high school and uh, and never really killed anything with it, but. Yeah, I'd never kill anything with mine either. <laughs> right, but then I I got my own money and I jumped up and I bought a whole bunch of new equipment and I it was like going from a, a Ford Escort to driving a Ferrari in one day. It was awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was that was the same with me. I, I had yeah, I had like a like a Pinto, and I mo- I moved up with the the PSE Super Short. Oh, my, I I couldn't believe how it shot. Yeah. And at that point in time, because I'm a little bit. Physically, I'm a little bit tore up from racehorses. Yeah, you know they tend to lean on lean on the female body super hard, and um, I was shooting sixty pounds. Like I didn't I didn't know, you know. I'm just ordering things like via internet. Yeah, because I really there was very little bow shops around. I went to a Matthew shop, and and the guy more or less just says he'll never sell a woman's bow. You know, it's kind of what he told me. Yeah, I walked out and ended up with the PSA, but. I love that thing. I couldn't draw it very well when it got to like 10 degrees, but it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so then you were, it sounds to me like you're kind of a self-taught deer hunter. Then you didn't have a, a ton of people who were bow hunting around you and you just kind of, did you just stick to your 20 acres or did you go out and explore some of that, uh, Adirondack forest? I mean, I've done a lot of the public land in the last few years before I came down here. You know, it kind of has to do with part of the reason why, why I came down here. Um, my back 20, it was surrounded by the front side, was surrounded by, like, neighborhood building, typical East Coast. Yeah. The back side, there was 600 vacant acres. Some of it was wetland and will never be built on. And I was, there's two zones in New York. There's a northern zone and a southern zone. It's really strange the way they do it. The southern zone has a super long bow season. That's where most of your 
like P and Y bucks come from are Western New York and kind of like 50 miles north of New York City, all down in that area, there's a lot of agriculture. Up by me, not so much agriculture. It's mountain and it's northern zone. And they, they kill us because the middle of October, the gun season comes in and it's six weeks long through the rut. Okay. So what I ended up getting on my 20 acres, as long as I could keep the trespassers off, which I understand you have a problem with too. Yeah. But the bucks would, they would chase bucks onto my property and like, I didn't know. In the beginning, I, I learned a ton about pressure. Between the body language I already knew from horses, where I could read the deer, and all the mistakes I made, pressuring that back 20, I mean, I used to, you know, you watch TV and you try to rattle and you try to grunt, and they run the other way because they every time they hear that, they hear bang behind it Yeah, <laughs> where I am. So it taught me to be really stealthy. Gotcha. Even even on your your twenty little acres. My twenty acres. I killed a nice buck there right before I left, like a two hundred pound. He's probably only a one ten. Yeah. But in the Adirondacks, he was like a four and a half year old. He was a big buck. Yeah. And he had me patterned. He, I knew I could see his bed right on the other side of my pasture fence, and I only had two entrances to go to that back twenty. And he knew I had to use one or the other. So at the very end, I started, I never killed a nice buck on that back 20. I hunted it for like almost 10 years last one before I moved. And I knew where he was, and I started thinking about it and listening to, to the podcasts and gathering all the knowledge I could because I picked people's brains. I listened to your podcast and, you know, a few of the others, and I'm learning. And I'm always going to be learning, but I think I'm getting good at least i'm going to say because i it took me two hours to cover 200 feet and i had to bump them but i went in a totally different way i took five steps and sat down for 10 minutes and five steps and, and i bumped a single deer that was in a large bed it had to be him eventually i have i'm a climber person so i put my climber up the tree the day before i had seen a buck poop there yeah. That's how I knew where he was. I climbed the tree, and I sat, and before the sun went down, and I was getting to, like, crispy 15 degrees or whatever, Yeah. he walked back in, and that's the only good buck I ever shot on that 20 acres. But it's because it's so pressured. I, I had an east wind, which we almost never have in that area. You know, I went in a totally different way. I had to really outthink him. Well, that's pretty cool because I've I've done that before, not with what I would like for me, what I was considering a shooter, shooter buck, but I jumped into a bedding area. Um, well, this was a couple years ago uh, on a morning hunt, and I every every time I went into this specific area, I was kicking a buck out, um, this one buck out, and then he'd run out into the field. Um, and so the next, let's see, the next day. I waited until it was already light and then I walked in and into the same stand and I kicked him out again, but at least I was able to watch where he ran and he ran out into the field and he would come all the way back around this field edge and come back to the same bedding area where I couldn't see him every single time, which kind of told me that, Hey, if I do this again, I can move my tree stand over to you know, intercept him if he was, if he was a shooter, but he wasn't. So I didn't, but, uh, yeah, like 
I've been in scenarios where you bump them and then eventually they come back because, you know, their bed worked for them. Yeah, I mean, I he was hiding on that 20 acres because it was it was November 17th in 2017. Yeah. And um I knew he wasn't going to go out on the 600 acres where the orange army was just trampling it. Yeah. You know, he was going to stay on my 20, so I just made sure I was backed up against my paddock fence so he couldn't circle around behind me and hide. Yeah. That's awesome. Um so I want to get to one of these stories now. And you were, uh, you said something about, I have a really cool uh, story about an owl too, but I want to hear, uh, I want to hear, uh, this story about the snow owl that, uh, you had a couple encounters with. (laughs) One real good one. Um, I had just gotten the PSE super short. It took me, I only got it in December. Yeah. We had like maybe, maybe a week left of late season in the area I lived in, in New York. And um, some one of the trespassers had a tree stand on the back, like a little 12-footer or something, you know, a single seat, seat on the back of my land. And I had moved it a couple months before that, never sat in it, never did anything. Like, I'm just trying to figure the whole situation out. And I just walked, like, we had a fresh snow. It was early December. I walked right down a deer trail, which I know I probably shouldn't do, but I got lucky. They happened to be coming from the other direction. And I climbed up this little 12 foot stand, didn't have my harness and all the stuff. Cause at that point in time, I didn't know that I had this brand new ball and the sun was going down and the moon was coming up behind me. I remember cause you could see them. They were almost at the same time. Yeah. And as it got dark, I sat there and these deer started to come in and I wanted to leave like it was too late to shoot, but I wanted them to leave first. Cause I already know if, if I blow them out of there and show them where the stand is, it's, I have to move the stand. So I was just kind of sitting there and they were maybe 30 yards. They were, there were pine trees between me and them. So I was sitting real quiet and I'm also observing and trying to learn as much as I can about these. They're all does, a bunch of does came in. And I'm sitting totally still for like 15 minutes and they walk away. So now I decide I'm going to pack up my bow and my quiver. I have my quiver separate and leave. And I go to move to get my quiver and this thing flies out of the sky and sits on a branch that's not even two feet from my face. And it was huge. It was white. And it was like, I don't know, two and a half, three feet tall. (laughs) It it, it looked like a pterodactyl to me. Yeah. So... Thank God we had enough snow because I kind of like just fell backwards off the 12 foot tree stand, you know, and I remember looking up and they just sat there and looked at me for a minute and then it flew away and it was this huge snow owl. So a snow owl basically scared you out of a tree stand it, or not necessarily well, scared you, but you were being like, a suburban, I, no, he scared me out. Yeah, no, that was proper because I just moved my finger and he must've thought it was like a mouse or something. You know, I just moved my finger to get my quiver because I was going real slow. It's going to put the quiver on the bow and climb down and go home. It was dark. I sat maybe a half an hour after shooting light to let the deer, the does wander away. And he saw me move. I have no idea. He must have been watching me for a while. I was perfectly, when I moved my fingers, all of a sudden he just sat right next to me. And I turned around and looked, and I looked right in his eye, and I just like fell over back. But we had like 
I don't know, there was like two feet of snow underneath my stand. I kept every time it snowed, I just kept brushing off the seat. So there was a pile of snow under my stand. Thank God. Oh my God. So you're lucky that you didn't get hurt. Yeah. Well, I learned about my, I have, I use rock climbing harness now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but I did, you know, it was a little, it might not even been a 12 foot stand. It had like three steps and a seat. Right. Right. Yeah, it wasn't very high. But All right. So yeah, no, that kind of freaked me out. I got, I got, to, I got to share uh, my owl story with you. All right. So this was a late October hunt. I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting in a tree stand on kind of this um, ridge that it's flat up top where there's a horse pasture, and then it kind of comes down into an ag field, and I'm, I'm facing into the, uh, the sunset. Right. And so the sun goes down and once the sun goes down all the wind dies down and all i can hear is there's no birds chirping nothing it's that it's like that quiet time uh of the day where it's just almost it just becomes silent and the only thing i can hear is like there's two squirrels kind of wrestling and you know playing with each other down on the ground jumping up the tree chasing each other uh they they climb up on this one branch in front of me at about mm, 20 yards uh they start to wrestle a little bit then one sits there and the other one goes back up the tree and he's just sitting there and i think he's working on an acorn or some kind of nut or something but he's facing away from me and it's dead quiet and then all of a sudden i hear and just right by me i'm like close i'm gonna say like within a foot of this owl's wings come by me and he just without having to stop with his wings just glides right over this squirrel one paw one of one paw of i guess that's what they're called maybe right uh one of the feet uh from the owl comes down grabs the squirrel by the head and then he without having to flap his wings he just coasted off into nothing and it was like oh my <laughs> god that was one of the it was like this national geographic moment i just witnessed it was crazy that's awesome. I could replay that exactly in my head. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you can too. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was awesome. That's what hunting's all about is those, I mean, if, if if you're not killing, you know, that's it's about those experiences. Yeah, I've I've actually had quite a few run ins with the Adirondack wildlife. Like I said, I was a suburban girl. You know, I never saw more than pigeons and squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> and <yeah>. rabbits. <laughs> well, the other story now I wanna hear, because you, you sent me two, right? You sent me this uh the, the owl. Coyotes. And the coyotes. Yeah. Now you say big coyotes. Um, big coyotes. And I've n- I don't know if I've ever seen one that's made me go, oh my god, that's a big coyote. Um, I've seen a lot of coyotes in one place at one time. I've had a run in with a couple co- like a a pack of coyotes, but nothing ever so big where I was just, whoa, that's a big coyote. You know, I've been on the bow forums for quite a few years. I actually learned quite a bit, too, from using some of the archery forums, you know. Yeah. And the Midwestern guys, they would always say, there's no such thing as an 80-pound coyote, blah, 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 you know, and they say the little teeny things, and I had a cattle dog. And I've been drawn on many what I call, like, normal coyotes. Yeah. That they come trotting into the tree, and it's, you know, they usually hit that, that magic time that's right before it gets dark. And I'd be drawn on them, but because I had a cattle dog and I know the size and the coat color, and I couldn't positively identify that it was a coyote and not a cattle dog, yeah. I wouldn't shoot it. 
Yeah. You know, just in case a neighbor had a dog that was, I couldn't, I couldn't live with my, you know, I don't want to do anything like that. Try to be responsible. But these things, there was no, when they turned around and looked at me, I, I tell you this, but they put a chill down my spine. I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe I'd been hunting out there with those things. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was, I, how, how big, you know, I mean, I, yeah, tell the story, tell the story. Yeah, I, it was um, my my back 20 again. See, the reason I end up on my back 20 is, like I said, we work seven days a week. And after, you know, four o'clock, the horses are fed. I might have two hours before the sun goes down. Right. And during hunting season in the wintertime. So I would just try to get out as quiet as I can on that back 20. And I was sitting in the same tree as the one that the snow owl landed on. I, I had a different stand up there. This is like maybe four years ago, five years ago. Yeah. And it was a cold night. Like you said, when, you know, you get that little breeze over the, over the snow we had where the snow had melted. And then there was a, a crust on top because it melted and refroze. Right. So you could hear anything walking through the woods, like a mile away. Uh, you know, a deer, cause it would have to break through the crust of the snow when they were walking. It was just loud. And I could hear these four does coming in and I could see them up to my like 11 o'clock and I knew where the main trail was. They were going to come around behind me and I figured I would just wouldn't have a shot at them. And then all of a sudden they snort and bolt and they're maybe 150 yards from me and they're bolting like towards me. And I hear them snort and run down. There's a little hill behind me that goes down. There's a little spring and I hear them crash across the spring and they all start snorting. And all you could hear coming across the crust of the snow was like, choo, 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 choo. and yep. you know, there's deer make sounds and, and coyotes make sounds and deer don't run like that. Yeah. No, they don't. Deer, <laughs> when they go through snow, this was a constant steady trot. So I kind of figured there was some coyotes. I turn around and look and I see on the tail end of them when they turn around and snow and I can see one like black tail go behind this thick, like my forest. You can't see usually more than 15, 20 yards. And I see this tail go behind this snow-crusted pine tree. So I'm sitting there, the deer, they snort a little bit, then I hear them off in the distance. And then I hear the, the crusty trotting coming back towards me. Like I said, I'm sitting on the main trail from my back 20. It's like a deer highway. And you can hear, and as they came up the knoll and I could see them, I was drawn I couldn't even shoot. I mean, they were black. They were, there was a pair. Like, I don't know if it was a male and a female, but there were two of them. They had the big whisk under their chin, like dances with wolves. <laughs> turned around and looked at me. One of them had, like, the one had yellow eyes. And I turned around and looked at me, and I was just like, <gasps> and I, I let go, but I let go too late. Like, I wasn't really aiming, you know? I was just like, holy crap. I couldn't believe I'd been hunting out there with those things. I mean, I have some bears and stuff in my area too, but they were a shocker. And I have, since then, I have shot, I shot a red one that was like 75 pounds. But people don't believe, you know, the Eastern Koi Dog, Coyote Mix, whatever they want to call it, Koi Wolf. I have footprints on my snow. Like I wear a lady size seven. I put my foot down. Their footprint is half the size of my sh my foot, <laughs> with a snow boot on. That's a that's a pretty big coyote. I, I 
I don't know. I like I don't know what to say because I've I've never seen a, a like a coyote so big that it it's uh, freaked me out. However, I was coming out of a tree stand. Well, this was several years ago, and uh, I have to walk through this hor- horse pasture, and I in the distance I could hear, um, you know, a couple of them singing, and then all of a sudden I hear hear a couple singing you know, probably about 200 yards. And then as I'm walking to my truck, everything starts getting closer and they start, it's not a howl, but it's like the yip, 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 yip noise. And I don't know whether they communicate like that. I don't know, but. Oh, I know they do. I've, I've, yeah, I've been in that one too. I'll tell you another story. (laughs) I, I, I felt like I was being hunted at some point because then all of a sudden I was circled and Luckily, nothing got between me and the uh, me and my truck, but they were on both sides of me, so they like circled me or something. And uh, I was I I just kind of kept walking straight to my truck. But you know, as a man, I'm a I'm a big tough man, right? Like I I would never admit to being freaked out by something like that. But I tell you right now, I was freaked out when they started getting, and it was it was dark. So I couldn't really see anything, and uh, the only thing I could see was like a reflection of my truck in the background, and then I could hear them running and yipping. Uh, probably, I would say seventy yards, maybe closer, if if not closer. It, it freaked me out. I'll tell you that. Oh, I've had them tug on a deer that I was dragging up a couple <laughs> years back. I, I shot a doe. I was in the back. It's late season again, you know, it's like November. And my college-age son was living with me when I was in New York. You know, he's on his own now, but he was living with me then. And as much of a city boy as he wants to be, he grew up on a farm, and I make him come help me drag deer out. (laughs) So I I shot this doe, and there was another doe with her when I shot her, and it was getting dark. So I said, okay, I usually go home and I have what I call a dead sled. You know, it's kind of like a toboggan. It was actually his toboggan when he was a little kid, Yeah. but I call it a dead sled because I usually put my deer on it and drag him, drag him up. You know, there was snow on the ground. So I went up to get my son. I got a headlamp, and I said, look, meet me down by, because I have a tractor barn that I usually hang my deer, and I process my own deer. So I said, meet me down by the tractor barn in like 15 minutes. I had my phone in my pocket. And I went down, and there was it was dark at this point, and I'm ready. It wasn't very far. It was maybe 150 yards into my 20 acres that this doe was lying. You know, she she dropped right away. Yeah. I learned the, I learned to drop them in like 15, 20 yards because if they go off my 20 acres, I'm screwed. I have like vegans that live around me. You know. <laughs> oh, oh it's, it's different. So I go back to get it, and I hear something running around. I kind of assumed it was the other doe still hanging around. So I put the doe, you know, I, I got her, I flip her onto the sled and I, I start dragging her up and it's not that far. And my, my, I can hear my son coming down and I'm I, it feels like I'm getting a cord on a tree. So I look back, you know, I have a headlamp on at this point. I look back and I'm folding her legs up and trying to make sure that she's all tucked into the toboggan. I have her tied up with a hay string. So her legs shouldn't be catching on the little tree stumps and stuff. It's, like I said, it's, it's thick, uh, mixed forest, you know, it's hard woods and pines and it felt like she was getting caught on tree stumps. So now I'm dragging up. I get to the main part. I actually had like a little, it was, it was a logging road, but I turned it into a mini uh, food plot. And I get out to where I feel like I'm clear. I have like another 50 yards to go. I just drag it up to my back paddock fence, you know, and my son will meet me there and help me bring it up the rest of the way. 
So I'm dragging it up, and I, I, I say, with good Yankee hunt, I know there's no trees around there. I turn around and look, and all I see is eyes. And I was like, this son of a gun. I kept understanding. I couldn't understand how the back legs kept getting off the back of the sled. You know, and I turned around and looked, and I said, son of a gun. And then I was really freaked out. I was like, Richard! <laughs> he knows when I, when I don't call him rich that something's really wrong. He's like, Mom, what's the matter? I said, go get the garden. <laughs> go get the gun. And he didn't even know where they are. <laughs> and I said, go get the gun. I said, get a headlamp. Get something. And his job, when I brought that up, I actually had three or four of them following me. I couldn't see all of them because, like you said, they, they run back and forth through the through the thick part of the woods. But when I got on the other side of the pasture fence, and it's a no climb that goes all the way to the ground, yeah. I felt kind of safe. But I, my son had a headlamp on. I said, Rich, your job is to sit there and look into the woods and point. And he only had a twenty two, but I said, you point in there, and if you see two eyes, I said, you shoot in the middle of them. <laughs> and he was like, Mom, I can't shoot it. What if it's a dog? I said, dogs don't chase you in and pull the back legs off here. And he was free, and he's a big kid too. You know, he's like a big guy, like football player size, and I couldn't get him to pull the trigger on that. Time. <laughs> That's funny. I tell you what, I don't think I ever cleaned a deer so fast. Though. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, because my tractor bone's only about maybe thirty foot on the other side of my back paddock fence. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it was cold. It was it was getting to be a nasty night too. It was like starting to sleet and stuff, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it's it's cool. It's all those little experiences, right, that make what, in my opinion, hunting so fun is because you can't kill a deer or, well, I, I don't anyway, kill a deer every single hunt, every single day, right? So you got to learn how to appreciate the nature part of it and take away memories and stories uh, because I, I feel that a lot of times people overlook that whole part of it and they overlook the fact that, you know, hunting is part of nature you know you're you're in nature so you might as well take time to just observe your surroundings oh, i've had some i've had woodpeckers you know climb up on the tree next to me you get those big uh, i guess they call them affiliated with the redheads yep and it, during the daytime like in early season like in october and you sit there and watch them and you know all the birds and i've seen quite a few owls and hawks i've had a, i've had like i use a climber most of the time and I had a porcupine. It's funny. I, I know exactly how porcupines work. The female, I guess, is bigger than the male. And she climbs a tree and they make this, yeah, yeah. And he was, like, arguing with her. Because <laughs> he would climb behind her up the tree. And then she would turn around really quick and chase him down the tree. And he would, like, half fall down the tree. And then he would come back begging her. And finally, she got in the tree next to me. So he decided to climb up my tree. And I had to take an arrow out of my quiver and, like, tap him on the head and be like, dude. You can't climb any further than this. You know? <laughs> then you're going to climb over me. Oh. They're kind of calm from what I can see, you know. Yeah. They're, they're not mean animals. But, no, that was funny because that was like a husband and wife fight all the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, April, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to just BS with us for a while, share a couple good stories. And, uh, man, good luck this upcoming season down in Florida. Uh, I got tanks in Kansas. Oh boy! That, my plan, my plan was if I moved and like kind of upgraded my house, and so I could fish here when it's cold and nasty. But like last year, I went to Kansas. That was a cool experience. That was the first time I ever hunted out of state. Okay. Huge difference between the deer population in like upstate New York and the deer population in Kansas. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Well, good luck in Kansas. You're gonna try to take one of those. Uh, 
you going after something big? Yep. Well, last year I shot an eight pointer. Um, where I was, I was like in the middle of the state. There was a lot of thick cedars. Yeah. And I lost them in the cedars. And the guy actually found them a little while ago. So I did a European mount. Okay, cool. Oh, he, he wasn't the oldest buck in the world, but oh my God, I have a friend out there. He has six acres and he's like, I don't have anything, but he had farmland all around him. I made him put a camera out. He had a couple of monsters. He had one eight pointer last year. He must have been three and a half. He's four and a half this year. That thing's going to be pushing 180. 180 as an eight-pointer. That's just like Mass. And you could see how his body, like it was a rut, and his neck wasn't big enough. Like he, he had to be about a three-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah. I'm sure the one I shot, he was like a, I mean, I didn't get get him while he was alive. He was like a 180-pound eight-point, but he wasn't thick. He, he was like a two-and-a-half, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. He was a little bit younger, but no, this year mature, yeah. That's awesome. There's another huge ten-pointer we had on some cameras. I'm hunting public, though. I've, I'm waiting for maps to come. I'm yeah. looking at a new section of public. Well, good luck. I, hopefully, that that hole pays off for you. No, thanks. Well, thanks I again. Try. I I learned a lot. I studied. You know, last year I'm proud of myself. I had all the pinch points picked out. Like I, they were deer exactly where I thought they would be. That's awesome. Just that, map scouting and that and, makes everything easier, right? Yep. I don't play the gimmicks. I, I, you know, everybody's like, oh, you can rattle and you can grunt and you want to know something. I learned in New York just to be invisible. That's right. That's right. That's probably. free and quiet and put myself in a good spot, this fresh sign. And like I said, I, I had a saddle. You know, I actually had a trophy line saddle years ago. And it just wasn't for me. Like, my knees aren't good enough, I don't think, for it. I know it's new rave now, but I love my climber. Yeah, absolutely. Got to stick with what works, right? Yep. Well, April, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you, Dan. Great podcast. All right, everybody. That brings us to the end of another awesome episode. Huge shout out to April for taking time out of her day to uh, chit chat with us. Huge shout out to all of you for continually checking in on these podcasts uh this uh this story session has been somewhat popular and uh it just lets me know that you guys love hearing the stories behind successful and even unsuccessful hunts right and this episode really goes to show that um there doesn't even need to be really any kills involved to have great hunting stories so uh that's uh that's uh, reassuring so Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Lone Wolf, Ripcord, Wasp, Ozonix, and Prime. Huge shout out to the network partner, Exodus, and Interstate Batteries. Um, I think that's it. Check us out on social. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your podcasts. And if you haven't already, Facebook and Instagram, not only for the Sportsman's Nation, but for Nine Finger Chronicles as well. And stay tuned. There's going to be some more giveaways coming soon. And it's that time of year where we're going to start thinking about hanging our tree stands. And if you're one of those guys, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.